This is an RNZ podcast. Facebook has announced a series of changes in an attempt to stop hate speech and extremism being spread on its platform. The social media giant plans to de-radicalise users who search for white supremacy pages by redirecting them away from that page. Facebook will also use artificial intelligence to better spot and block live videos of shooters. That was TVNZ's breakfast show on Wednesday, and Facebook's announcement of new moves to limit exposure to extremist content was headline news right across New Zealand media that morning. This was widely described as a result of Facebook's commitment to the Christchurch call, which it signed up to back in May. But the announcement also came the day before a US government hearing in Washington, D.C., at which executives from Facebook, Google and Twitter were all about to be grilled about how they handle violent content. Last week, the boss of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, flew in here for a quick chat with the Prime Minister behind closed doors, all about the Christchurch call. And one big problem for Twitter these days is fake accounts, or bots, which are highly effective in spreading misinformation, the kind of malicious, misleading stuff, often called fake news, which is damaging democracy itself in countries where Twitter has a lot of users. Now, earlier this month on Media Watch, I spoke to Dr Melanie Bunce about that. She's the author of a new book called Broken Estate, all about problems threatening the fourth estate these days. And she told me that misinformation was one of those problems, but it's less of a worry here than it is elsewhere in the world. We are protected from kind of um, fake news in that narrow sense of people talking about, you know, um, people creating fake websites and fabricating whole stories. This one, like the, the you know, the, the Pope endorsing Trump in 2016, it was very popular. We're protected from those ones um, where people are really trying to make money um, by sending that news around. But, of course, we're still getting information online and from Facebook groups to Reddit to Mumsnet to any blog you come across on the Internet, um, there's a high risk that you'll come across misinformation, exaggerations, rumours, people uh, intentionally or unintentionally trying to mislead people. Um, And that's something that we're seeing Uh, more and more concern around. I mean, we've got a a measles outbreak that people are saying is linked to, you know, uh, you know, misunderstandings about vaccines. It's a classic example of this problem. Um, And it will certainly, uh, I would think, be an issue to watch out for in the election. Well, lucky for us, if she's right. Coincidentally, another London-based expat expert said something similar in a recent talk at Auckland University with the grim title, Why the Trump Era Could Last for 30 Years. In it, London School of Economics politics professor Robert Wade said this. Again, good news for us if he's right. But last week, a visiting colleague of his at the London School of Economics gave a talk at Waikato University in which she warned us it's not just political leaders who are seeking to misinform us, as we'll hear in a minute. Now that same week, RNZ's podcast The Detail asked the question, is post-truth politics creeping into New Zealand? Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton and this is The Detail. Today, post-truth politics in a world of fake news, alternative facts and one-liners. If you put out something that you know to be a lie or or a a piece of misinformation, uh, you know that the media are going to pick up on it and they're going to broadcast it and that the retraction is going to come later or the fact-checking is going to come later. Green Party co-leader James Shaw pointed the finger like this in that episode. 
sort of lessons of Trump, the lessons of Brexit, the lessons of the Australian election seem to have gone to Simon Bridges' head and this kind of burn the house down in order to win approach, I think, is a very, very bad turn for New Zealand politics. But while the detail focused exclusively on the political leaders creating and spreading spin and misleading simplified messages and the role of social media in spreading those too, Dr Lee Edwards from the London School of Economics warned they're not the only ones responsible. Her talk at Waikato University was called Organised Lying and Professional Legitimacy, Public Relations Accountability in the Disinformation Debate. Disinformation is part of the DNA of PR, said the Associate Professor in Media and Communications, who formerly worked in corporate communications here in New Zealand. Dr Lee Edwards argued that the role of the professional PR industry has been largely overlooked. That blunt-sounding concept of organised lying isn't a new one. The German-American philosopher Hannah Arendt coined the phrase in the early 1970s to describe how political parties co-opted advertising tactics to create what she called the consistent substitution of truth. Now, obviously, that's a long way before modern political spin and social media got involved, but Dr Edwards told me it's still relevant today in the context of fake news and professional public relations. Working out what's credible and what isn't and where we should challenge politicians who are presenting um, ideas to us and where we can accept what they say as a reasonable version of, of what's happening. I think that's much more difficult because there are far more players in the mix and they are players who don't really have the interest of politics at heart. A lot of them are really presenting fake news, and I know that you've talked about fake news on the programme before, but they're, you know, they're delivering fake news because they get audiences because those audiences deliver money, and that's the primary motivation. Stories about the world and how it works are not really designed always to enable us to engage with the world in a way that helps us understand it better. They are designed to enable us to engage with that particular producer of news so that, that new producer of news or stories can make some money. And so that's where the kind of the world of fake news, if you like, kind of bumps up against this organised lying problem, if you like. But you've also been looking at where professional public relations companies and the communications business is in the middle of this. In fact, you've got a line in your paper, um, this information is part of the DNA of PR. Um, that's quite strong. Yeah, it is quite strong. Yeah, it is quite strong. And I think um, I don't think the PR industry uh, would necessarily like that. In the debate about fake news and disinformation, the public relations industry has kind of sidestepped, certainly in the UK, which is the small study that I did. They're not really looking at the situation and acknowledging the fact that the techniques that they use on a day-to-day basis, are being used in these other contexts to distort the way we understand the nature of public life and our role within public life. Once you take responsibility, you can then say, OK, well, what should we do about that? How do we ring-fence, if you like, the kind of work that we believe is appropriate from the kind of work that should not be allowed to be associated with our profession? So you think they've, they've got away with pushing this stuff on behalf of their clients? Yeah. I'm not saying that PR, that the average PR and comms company is involved in doing fake news. That's a different thing. Mm. What I am saying is that the techniques that they use are used by fake news practitioners, some of whom may be associated with the PR industry, some of them may be on, in a separate kind of kind of company who would never say that they were PR. So Cambridge Analytica, for example, they, they didn't say they were a PR company, but the techniques that they use are absolutely standard marketing and PR techniques. And so my argument is that when we look at the nature of fake news, you 
can't simply say, oh, it's these strange actors who are all hmm. de- determined to destroy democracy. We can't just say it's just them. We have to then look at what they're using, what techniques are they using, and where have they got those techniques from? And, and then look at where those origins are and get the people who use them on a day-to-day basis to, to take responsibility for, that, for the fact that what they do and what they stand by is now being used in a corrupted environment. So who, who are those people that, that are using it on a day-to-day basis? Well, those are the PR agencies. You know, those are the, the, it's the PR industry that uses On behalf those of their clients. On behalf of their clients. My point in the paper is that um, those techniques get transplanted and... There are instances in the PR industry where um, communication is used unethically. Um, in the paper, there are some examples of a similar farm lobby in, in Israel that also kind of communicated in a way that simply distorted the truth to, um, to, for patients. You know, Bell Pottinger in the UK was expelled from the PRCA because uh, of the role it played in fermenting racial um, discord in South Africa. So there are not just historical but current examples of where public relations techniques are used unethically. And the, and the narrative that professions put forward, um, that the PR profession puts forward, is that, you know, they themselves are truthful and honest and they are the harbingers of truth and trustworthy communication but the history and some current practice shows that that's not always the case and you have to face up to that and do something about it. But wouldn't that be because their clients are telling them we need you to project a positive image of us whether it's it's truthful or not or leaving out a whole load of things which aren't good about our company or our products just uh, that's your job focus on the good make us look good. But they are also uh, people with enormous power to shape the world and the way that we see ourselves within that world. And regardless of whether you work for a client, you have to take that other responsibility, that social and cultural responsibility, very seriously. There is, I think, a limit to saying we we do whatever the client wants us to do. You have to be able to turn around and say, actually, if we do this and think beyond the actual campaign, the impact of that campaign is going to make a difference in these ways to these kinds of people. Is that something we want to realise or not? And you mentioned here uh, in the paper that you've looked at the UK uh, to show, on the one hand, diverting attention away from what they've done in the past or their clients have done, and on the other hand saying, actually, we're the agents of reliable information, trust us. You can't do both of those things, can you? Well, well, you can if nobody's looking at you. I was interested in how they um, position themselves in the debate about fake news and disinformation. How are they commenting on it? What responsibility are they taking, etc.? And when I looked at the statements and publications that they were putting out about fake news, it was really interesting to me that they didn't really engage in debates about the democratic impact of fake news, um, the social impact of falsities. They, They did talk about the dangers that it presented, but they very quickly moved to the danger that it presented to clients and to brands and not so much to society. What that enabled them to then do is to create an argument that said we are the people who understand and conduct ethical and trustworthy communication. What we need to do, our role in this debate, is to promote ethics, to promote our ethics and promote our trustworthiness and deliver the kinds of services that helps to insulate clients and audiences from the impact of fake news. Now, for me, that was a translation of this kind of social dilemma and political dilemma into a business opportunity. Um, and it also serves the additional purpose of them um, arguing that they are ethical and truthful in all ways. And again, if you go back to the historical record, if you look at current practices, those are that's not always the case. The biggest companies in public relations, Bell Pottinger, Hill & Knowlton, other companies, have been revealed to be duplicitous in what they're doing. It means that that kind of behaviour 
If it's not sanctioned, it's certainly in some circumstances accepted, even among the most powerful operators. Well, you mentioned there about the primacy of the client's needs for the PR company or communication specialists who are representing them. And you say here in the paper, industry codes of practice position the client relationship as the priority rather than the public interest. Um, and the importance of public relations, contribution to democracy, freedom, freedom of speech, the public interest, professional standards, they're mentioned, but are vague and unenforceable. Um, mm. Now, he, here in New Zealand, we have the uh, Public Relations uh, Institute of New Zealand as the umbrella body. Their code of ethics does say uh, we serve the public interest by acting as responsible advocates for those we represent. Uh, and where there's uh, under the heading of loyalty, we are faithful to those who we represent while honouring our obligations to serve the public interest. Does that strike you as any stronger than the codes of conduct you've mentioned there, I think mostly in the UK? The public interest isn't defined, I suppose, and, and or spelt out. And, and also I think the other thing that's interesting is that the public interest is linked to client interests. As if they're one and the same thing, perhaps, or certainly as if you can't have one without the other. And sometimes, of course, the interests of society go against the interests of clients or are different to the interests of clients. And then that level of generality that they have means that if you are a practitioner where you have, for example, a, uh, your pharma client saying, you know, we want to really push this drug, so just send out this message. You know, we're not going to tell anyone about the test results, for example, uh, or the trial test results. You know, and so then, but they know that from, from a societal perspective that that's, that's wrong. What do they do? Where's the advice that says to them, okay, in this situation... Public interest comes first, client interest comes second. You know, their job is on the line, the, the account is on the line. Where, What's the process that they are able to use to make decisions? And I think industry associations, again, this is about really needing to look at the situations that they have in the organisations who are their members and say, OK, these are the dilemmas that, are people fa- that people are facing. How can we as an industry association and as an industry more broadly start to really pick apart situations where the techniques that we promote are being used inappropriately, unethically and create, you know, no-go areas for those situations? And how can we therefore protect some of the good practice that goes on? Because communications is still important. It is an important industry. I don't have any argument with that. Well, the public relations industry in this country uh, often say um, when it's pointed out, for example, that public relations and communication professionals vastly outnumber journalists who have a different interpretation of the public interest. They say, look, you know, you misunderstand us. This isn't all about spinning an image to the public on behalf of a paying client. You know, we're there working internally with them to say, actually, no, that could compromise your value. So, so no, don't do that. Yes, I think that does happen. This is the role of the PR person as the strategic advisor. And that's very much something that all PR practitioners want to have as part of their account. But but the point is exactly as you've described it. The, the, the advice that they give is based on the potential reputational, reputational damage to the organisation and not just the public interest. There is a point at which the conversations need to include an argument that says, if you do this, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, it will have this kind of impact on society and we don't think that that is appropriate and so we can't help you do that. There has to be a gap in practice that allows those kinds of conversations to happen. The risk then is always taken on by the agency or by the practitioner and, um, you know, chances are there's another agency or practitioner behind the wings waiting to get that client because maybe <laughs> it's account. a lucrative client, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so maybe you don't win. But nonetheless, I think those conversations are really important without having to constantly refer back to the reputation or the revenue. And then the 
conclusion of your paper, you say public relations is theoretically capable of contributing to public imagination and thereby to the quality of intersubjective judgment. It's a bit of a complex concept there, I imagine. Uh, but it must uh, to do so, it must differentiate between this information, uh, the distortion of facts, uh, such that a balanced debate is no longer possible and persuasion based on verifiable evidence. So is that at the crux of it, that they actually have to say, OK, Okay, client, we see what you what you want to project. Show us the evidence before we agree to push that message out into the public. Internally within client conversation, conversations, yes, absolutely, but also externally. So making sure, for example, that, um, again, in the story you covered around uh, Medicines NZ, you know, that it's very clear who news stories come from, where they're from, who is placing them, what's the potential vested interest that is that is driving that particular message. That's really important. But it has to then position its communication always in terms of the broader public interest, gener- generalisable interests that, that underpin public life. And uh, you do say right at the very end, uh, rehabilitating democracy and public relations and rejecting this organised lying requires regulators, clients... PR practitioners and journalists to take steps to, to regulate the practice uh, remains to be seen whether the political and civic institutions have the courage to take on that challenge. Now, I guess governments um, are among the biggest users <laughs> and most active users of public relations and communications. They might not be keen to bring the hammer down on this industry, even if it's not acting in the public interest. But but journalists, I mean, what do you think their role should be? Because they're on the receiving end of this. They're kind of battling it, is the way journalists often feel, because you know they're almost outnumbered by um, communications efforts. They have bigger budgets than they do. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, that imbalance in resources is really important. But, but you know, there, there is also plenty of evidence that journalists and PR practitioners work very closely together. You can have a good relationship with a PR practitioner as a journalist and vice versa, you know, um, but you you have to. Well, we often don't have a choice, do we? We have to deal with these organisations uh, through their appointed yes. um, people, often a, a third party. And that lends itself to maybe not asking questions all the time that you might ask about the PR industries. One of the things that I say in the paper is that very often, when journalists do challenge public relations stories, they focus on the client and not the PR practitioner. Um, and and the PR industry. Um, one of the narratives about public relations is that it is a, a neutral channel. So, and, and actually, advertising as well. You know, all we do is we we are a, a, a conduit through which information is able to flow from the client to the journalist or to the audience. That assumes that that channel, that ability to com- to, to transmit, has no impact on what happens to the converse, to the to the communication in the channel, and that's not correct. So, if you decide as a PR practitioner, we're going to do an event, we're going to do a Twitter feed, we're going to do a viral video, and we're going to do um, a, a, a media interview, all of those things enable you to insert different nuances into the kinds of communicate into the message that you're promoting, and that changes what people think. So, the PR practitioners themselves have a massive influence on the outcome and that's why they're paid on the outcome of the communication and I think that's why journalists are perfectly entitled to ask questions about what PR practitioners are doing in this process and not just what they're doing in relation to the client what are they doing off you know as agents in themselves that's where I would want media to be a bit more active really. And uh, it's getting a bit old now, but Nick Davis, the Guardian journalist, wrote a book called Flat Earth News Mm. about how the sausage is made. Uh, And uh, one of the things he talked about was almost a kind of 
food labelling type of system for um, giving greater transparency to the public. Should journalists routinely say, actually, when you know the Ministry of Health said dot, 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 or uh, Shell or BP or whatever uh, said this, that it, the statement didn't come via them? It was a statement prepared by public relations executive or a company? Yeah, I think it would. I, th- I think, you know, and you, d- you don't have to insert it into the story, but it could be almost like a by- like the byline, you know, further information was, information with this story was obtained from XYZ. There are lots of vested interests that would say, well, we don't really want that to happen. PR practitioners are used to being behind the scenes rather than in, in the story. So that, would, that would, I think, would be a massive step for them and it would be a big step for clients who want the publicity. They don't want the PR agency to have publicity um, in that sense, you know. Um, and the message is is being delivered on behalf of the client. But one of the the difficulties, I think, around the PR industry's ability to take responsibility for some of the less um, salubrious work that it does is that we don't know who works for whom. We don't know the, the client relationships. We don't know um, who's responsible for some of the communication um, that goes out. And so if you don't know, you can't work out what the power dynamics are behind that, um, behind that communication and what the vested interests are. And if you don't know that, then you don't have the materials to deconstruct it and critique it. Well, often we know they're being used almost as a shield so senior executives that don't like having to front up to the media because, well, it's not pleasant, particularly if the story is a serious one and there's a risk of the company or the individual not coming out looking great in the public eye, you know, they'll have a, a third party, a communications company, issue a statement on their behalf. Unless you know who the public relations organisations are, you can't then start to learn about what they do as an audience member, as a reader, and think and think then, you know, perhaps why they're in the business and, and what their role is and, and how they might be changing communication in order to appeal to you, why you're being targeted. You know, all of those questions that tell us more about organisations' interests in our lives and, and why they're interested in us and what they want from us. Those kinds of questions can't be asked unless we know a bit more detail about what's going on behind the scenes. Well, you've said, look, PR and communications industry's role in, um, in disinformation needs to be confronted, but also that some companies are perhaps trying to put themselves in the middle of this. For example, in a table you've got in your paper, they say disinformation can be produced by elites and anti-elites, and that's part of the, the, um, the kind of information war punch-up that goes on. Whereas PR, sometimes PR could say, well, PR contests government regulation and argues for strengthening audience education and increasing audience responsibility. So some canny PR companies are thinking are trying to come in the middle and say, actually, we, we can be the honest brokers and all that. You've got politically motivated wars going on via technology and governments and clients with their vested interests. We can be the honest broker in the middle. That's actually a, a strategy now. Um, if you look at the industry association or if you look at the public publications that that I looked at, that's the kind, that's one of the strategies that was in those publications. I think that is a genuine strategy for some organisations as well, and I think it's okay to to commit to that. If you're genuinely committed to that, then fantastic. I think that's great. Um, I think the variability within the industry at the moment means that the industry itself can't claim that. That's not happening enough. But certainly, again, I come back to the fact that, you know, not all PR agencies are alike. This isn't about tiring the industry with the same brush. Um, And some agencies are genuinely committed to, you know, ethical conduct. Um, But there's a lot more to be done, really. There's a lot more to be done, I think. And one other thing you mentioned earlier was some people's motivation around the world for getting involved in disinformation is that there's money in it. 
this clicks and so on. Uh, last week on the programme, we spoke to Melanie Bunce, a New Zealander who now uh, teaches journalism at City University mm. in London. She's just written a book about the New Zealand media scene and its challenges uh, in the global context of all the megatrends around the world that make times tough for news media. She made the point that because New Zealand market's small, we're kind of protected from outright misinformation that tries to make money because there's not much money in it and clicks in, a, in the New Zealand market for stuff that's specific to New Zealand. But she said we do need to be wary that uh, of people trying to sway opinions, not in mm. it for the money, but trying to get uh, opinions changed because you only need a small budget to reach a lot of people via social media in New Zealand. Do you think that's a concern here and we should be worried about it, say, with campaigning by interest groups as we come to an election in 12 months' time? Uh, yes, I think it's something definitely to be aware of. And I think, um, I mean, in some ways I suppose I might disagree with Mel in the sense that um, everything is relative, isn't it? So in relation to countries like the UK or the US, obviously there's much less money to be made in New Zealand. But within the New Zealand context, you know, if you're a New Zealand operator and you really want influence here for whatever reason that is, it's a really important place to be able to control. And so, you know, within that context... Absolutely be aware. Yeah, absolutely be aware. And I know that I'm, I was listening to one of your old programmes, Justin Turdern has talked about transparency and, and on the news. And um, it's clearly something that people are taking seriously. And it doesn't really matter how big you are because the impact is that I'm kind of most worried about, I suppose, is the social impact, you know. And, and New Zealand is still a society um, and needs to protect its own integrity. And that's where, for me, um, it makes such a massive difference to be able to, to see what's going on and control it better. Yeah, so um, with these codes of conduct and codes of ethics, does it need a kind of tribunal or something where the other members could say, you're making a whole industry look bad. Here you clearly haven't taken into account the public interest and balanced that with the interests of your clients and you know, we're going to sanction you. Is that the only thing that could work? Well, at the moment, because PR is unregulated outside the industry, that's that's the only thing that happens. And, and in the Bell UK? Pottinger, in the, I think in most places, actually. Um, in Bell Pottinger, Bell Pottinger was expelled from the PRCA for that behaviour. Um, and But they folded because clients left in droves. So they folded because they, they didn't have any clients, because they were so toxic. Now... That's not the same as the industry having the power to ostracise someone and tell them they can't practice anymore. And the problem with the associations is that they only account for a very small proportion of the total number of practitioners. It's not compulsory to join. So the leverage they have through the codes is somewhat limited through any disciplinary conduct. So you can't be struck limited. off like you could be as a dodgy medical practitioner. Not really. You know, the people who, who work for Bell Pottinger can work, can still work anywhere they like. I mean, you know, it's their job to, in their job interviews, they'll have to explain <laughs> what their position was in relation to that particular issue. Yeah, the communication. Uh, Challenge in and of itself for those yeah, individuals, yeah. isn't it? But they're not they're not struck off as a doctor would be or anything like that. That was Dr. Lee Edwards, Associate Professor in Media and Communications at the London School of Economics in the UK, formerly a corporate communications person here in New Zealand. Last week at Waikato University, she gave a talk called Organised Lying and Professional Legitimacy, Public Relations Accountability in the Disinformation Debate. 